Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week I talked to Stephen Bush and Anusha Kalian about Andy Burnham and the Labour leadership race. Then I talked to Barbara Speed and Caroline Crampton about abortion restrictions and whether or not you get abortion pills by drone. Well, the recess hasn't yet begun but I think it's fair to say that the summer season seems to be starting early in Westminster. There is a distinct dearth of exciting things to report on. But luckily, we still have the Labour leadership and deputy leadership races to talk about. I'm joined by Anusha Kalian and Stephen Bush, who both write for our online site, The Staggers, who have this week interviewed Andy Burnham, who is currently the front runner in the Labour leadership race. Um, Anusha, I'm going to start with you. Uh, what we, where would you say Andy is in terms of likelihood to win at the moment? Um, well, he was the front runner in terms of the number of MPs who nominated him. He's also got the unions on his side. Um, he's also very um, well known within the party because he's been a uh, minister during the new Labour years. And also he was prominent in the shadow cabinet under Ed Miliband as um, shadow health secretary, which is sort of the dream Labour job because you can just shout about the NHS and everyone claps. Um, so lots of people really do like him. But it looks like Yvette Cooper, uh, with her pitch, which is sort of, um, the middle road is becoming um, another likely candidate to win. Um, so I think it's probably between them as the front runners at the moment. There's sort of this kind of consensus emerging, isn't there, that on second preferences she might mm. pick up a lot more and therefore she might kind of sneak it that way. Um, Stephen, I'm interested because one of the things that you write in the piece which appears in this week's magazine is that the trouble is that Andy Burnham ran in 2010 as the, the continuity candidate. He's running in 2015 as the, the change candidate. But without, I would contend, any really eye-catching deviations of the past. I mean, he said things like the mansion tax was a was a mistake. What, how is this positioning working? I think, in some ways, so the one of the things we weren't able to get into the final copy is, yeah, he said, well, actually, running last time changed him. Is what he's saying. He's yeah, but in some ways, he's actually saying he himself is the change. The Labour Party will physically sound different. Uh, it will have more people. Uh, from different walks of life, because that's something which is personally important to him. He told us this story about how when he and James Pennell, who as well as being a political ally of his, was a good friend of his, shared an office when they were first MPs, news would break, the phones would ring for both of them. Radio 4 would want James, because James Pennell has a very southern accent, and um, Radio 5 would uh, would want him. Um, so in some ways it is it is primarily a tonal pitch. Of course... The reason why that is particularly attractive to Labour MPs is the threat to them is UKIP, where a tonal pitch is what did for them. Nigel Farage embodied himself as someone who spoke to 
the Labour core in a way that Ed Miliband just couldn't. Um, whether or not that is a sufficiently large pitch to take on his two rivals, I don't know. But, I mean, the thing I thought was interesting is, you know, obviously Anoush is one of the most plugged into the Labour Party people around. And the second you had to describe events pitch, you kind of start to go, um, it's, it's a little bit this thing. Can you really win a leadership election with a pitch that, is, that causes people to kind of get confused as to what it is? But I think there's a case for a bet to be made in the sense of the sort of don't rock the boat philosophy, which is, I think, where, I mean, I'm sure the campaign wouldn't admit to this, but it seems to be where they're pitching. It's like, I will not mess it up. Like, I will be a solid seven out of ten. You just know that I'm not going to fall over. I'm not going to make huge amounts of gaffes. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, do anything that frightens you. And that's not a very sexy pitch. But it is one to people who have suffered a, an unexpected defeat, I suppose, quite appealing. Now, I, you know, there are different kind of, there are different, uh, I was on Newsnight last week with um, Danny Finkelstein, who said the whole idea of kind of vision in politics is really overrated. You know, you can have a brilliant vision, and unfortunately that can be, A, the electorate can decide that they don't like the vision, or B, you can absolutely fail to accomplish any part of that vision. It actually counts for relatively little, which I thought was a kind of, an interesting argument because some of the people that we now think are the most successful world leaders, people like Angela Merkel, are not wildly ideologically exciting. They just make their pitch of like, I am the captain of the ship. I'm going to, you know, we're going to kind of pretty much, I'm not really going to move the rudder about too much. But um, I mean, I don't, I don't know how you feel about that, Anoush. Well, it's a bit different in this contest because they're trying to win not the electorate over, but the Labour Party over. And I think the Labour Party does need a vision. And I think if you're running as a candidate without one, then you're not going to get very far because the Labour Party is bruised. It wants to find someone who will take it in a new direction, a direction towards winning. So I think that if you don't give them a vision, and you just give them sort of a few policy pieces here and there and say that you won't mess things up, then that's not quite what they're looking for. That's not the answer to sort of the nightmare that they found themselves in. But that comes back to this argument that we've had a lot of times about whether or not this defeat was 83 or 92. So do you want somebody who is going to come out and completely remake the party or are actually Labour going to have to move through several successive leaders before they eventually return to an electable position? I don't know how you feel about that, Stephen. Do you think that whoever wins this contest is going to still be the leader in 2020? I mean, I, I think... I don't think Labour will acquire an instinct for getting rid of leaders. That is baked in over generations. I don't think it, think it takes a long time to change. The thing about this question Labour is asking itself of was it 83 or 1992, no one in 1987 who worked for Neil Kinnock was saying, do you know what, guys, I hope we only get 20 seats. They, they knew they wanted to beat the SDP in the fight for second, and they wanted to gain ground on the Conservatives in the fight for first. And they underperformed on that task. They, they, yeah, they only gained 20 seats. Ditto, in 1982, they weren't going, oh, well, we'll, we'll minimise again the swing necessary to get into office for a third time. They wanted to win, and they fell short. The risk for Labour, because what they did a lot this time is they only targeted 61 seats, and their aim was to get a coalition with the SNP or the Liberal Democrats, and in the end they couldn't even gain 61 seats. I think what will kill Labour at the next election is if they do select someone on the platform of, we need someone to recover to a winnable level because mm. I think if you don't yeah you know, if you bid for 100 you... seats and you're not going to get I think that's also interesting in sense of was the killer mistake trying to internally accepting that there would have to be a coalition with the SNP when we know that that attack line of you know there's going to be a Miliband in the pocket of Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond was so so potent and for voters in England definitely yeah I mean I think 
I think that, yeah, I think then the problem with the SNP was so bound in with the problem of Ed Miliband. Can you imagine the sentence, Gordon Brown in the pocket of the SNP? No, because for all of the flaws that some people felt Gordon Brown had, he everyone felt he was a titanic figure. If Nicola Sturgeon had tried to boss Gordon Brown around, he'd have thrown a mobile phone at her. Ditto <laughs> Tony Blair. I mean, that guy invaded two countries. He, you know, he wasn't going to be po- bossed around by Nicola Sturgeon. And he faced down his own party yeah. very publicly. I mean, that was, the, that was the model of leadership of the idea, which Cameron yeah. himself did in yeah. his early days. That kind of, I'm going to pick a, a deliberate fight with my own party to show... You know, and sort of then kind of do back me or sack me, and after that, in the same way that maybe that's what did for Gordon Brown in that failed election, because it looked like he'd had a wobble yeah. of confidence. And I think it's 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 like any job interview. It's the what did you do in your last job? And because Ed Miliband couldn't say I've, yeah, he he did actually stand up to the trade unions in 2013, but in a very complicated processology way that no one normal could understand. He didn't have something he could point to and go oh, I'm stronger than the SNP. And he, the fact, I think he's exactly right, he didn't look like a winner. Yeah, here's the moment I told Len McCuskey to shove off. And yeah. I, the trouble is, I guess there are quite a lot of people, Anoush, on the, on the left who probably think the fact that he never told Len McCuskey to shove off is in some way a good thing. All the people who disliked Tony Blair probably liked that about Ed Miliband, that he had a more consensual style. Yes, yeah, and the problem is, um, at the moment, is that the unions now have less of an influence in these elections, but still people, I don't know, Stephen, whether you agree with this, people still view them as um, this terrifying but awesome force that you have to kind of win over and you have to... um, And you have to sort of pander to them in a way that uh, Sadiq Khan is, is doing on in the mayoral electoral race. This idea that he's the kind of the union candidate. Exactly, it still has that cachet, even though it doesn't actually help them that much when it comes to the, the numbers anymore because of this one, new one member, one vote system. And so I think until they get rid of that sort of perception, then um, the, the candidates who try and court the unions are still going to have this almost disproportionate respect from some people who are more to the left of the party. But let's come back to, to Jeremy Corbyn then, who is the one of the lead, Labour leadership campaign that we haven't addressed so far. I mean, the, the trouble with Jeremy Corbyn is that he's producing messages that people, like a lot of pe- lefty activists, not maybe necessarily the membership, but the most engaged and committed people, hmm. he is definitely delivering the message that they want to hear. How does, I mean, I, well, let's assume that he doesn't win um, because of the, the way that the membership voted for, for David Miliband last time, that they won't necessarily go for the most left-wing candidate. How do you, as the next Labour leader, make an accommodation with that wing of your most engaged supporters? I mean, it's a difficult one. I, I think, in some ways, that you've, you've sort of got to be honest with people. Um, there are lots of things I you know, there, there are lots of things I would like the next Labour government to do than it won't for reasons of money, for political capital. What I want is a sense that I am not having it traded in for nothing. What I personally found painful about Ed Miliband's pandering on immigration is it wasn't even electorally successful. Mm-hmm. It kind of, I, I know this is awful attitude to have, but I'd have been willing to trade it in if it meant we didn't have a Conservative government. But he didn't trade it in for anything. He looked weird and weak because he appeared to have changed his mind on immigration. I think, you know, in some ways, the message that all three of the other candidates are offering to that bit of the party is, well, my offer is winning. Yeah, my offer isn't, you will... Yeah, actually, I think Peter Wilby sums it up very well in his column for us this week. Where he goes, yeah, he says, my heart says Corbyn, but my head says Liz Kendall. But at least, I think Liz Kendall's the one who's most likely to get a Labour majority, which means Jeremy Corbyn will at least be in the room. 
I think that's yeah. a really interesting point is that, you know, you get so many, your hands on so many levers of influence. And particularly we were talking about, you know, uh, the problem that Ed Miliband always had getting a hearing in the press and the fact that the press were very, very opposed to it. Well, if you look at something like the Sun endorsing the SNP in Scotland, being a winner does tend to, even, the, you know, people who might describe themselves as the Tory press, because, you know, they want the they want the scoops, they want the exclusives, they want the access. You know, you've got a lot more to give but you have to you have to get into power first and then you can actually change perceptions of yourself and control that more and the same thing is that if you have a labor government then you're right then actually all the things that Jeremy Corbyn wants certainly David Cameron's not going to deliver them for him so maybe that is but but, but I think that point about honesty is very interesting because the one thing that I think is a is a real problem in modern politics is the feeling that you try not to alienate anyone and by doing that you don't enthuse anyone I think it's true about Liz Kendall. I went to an event where she was speaking last night and she was very much doing that. So she was talking about how important early years is to her. So she wants to put more money into that. But she knows that she has to, you know, she knows that she has to pay for it. So she's not, she doesn't want to have a cut in tuition fees. And she said to the crowd who were of Labour activists, some of the ones who you were talking about who are more left wing. And she said, you know, I, I know that it's controversial, but I just have to be straight with you about that. And I think I admire that in in her. And I think some of the candidates haven't managed to do that kind of thing. They've just been telling everyone what they want to hear. I think that is a particular problem for Burnham because he was, you know, a minister under Blair. He mm. was in New Labour and now he's the candidate, you know, sort of the mild left wing candidate. And I think that trajectory, unless you explain, unless you do a sort of in Duncan Smith, Kind of, I know, which I, which I know that we all think the Easter House kind of epiphany was a slightly bolted on, made up narrative. The idea that I know actually this event changed my mind about X issue. If you just sort of seem to have drifted, I think that makes people worry that you don't have a kind of core thing that you will never abandon, which again comes back to that point, Stephen, you were making about you kind know, of strength. With Gordon Brown, you felt that there was a core of things that when Tony Blair began to slightly go a bit swivel-eyed <laughs> sorry sorry Tony um but that was also kind of sense that he'd, he'd got he'd accomplished all the things that he'd come into politics to do or he'd abandoned them and then he didn't have any kind of moral compass anymore it's a kind of unfashionable thing to talk about in, mo- in modern politics the idea that you might have a kind of deep moral because mm. people find it a bit suspicious uh. but yeah because I think I think Tony Blair point is a very important one because in 2001 no one thought they were voting for a leader who five months afterwards, some you know, a terrorist attack would kill lots of people in the United States. And that obviously changed the entire tenor of Blair's second term. So they kind of are looking at someone who they can go, well, who do I trust you know, if there's a dirty bomb, if Russia does invade another Baltic state? Um, and that, yeah, you know, I think you get more points for people for being a bit honest, or at least giving the appearance of honesty. One of the things Cameron did very well is he did that father of the nation routine that, you know, like, I am the kind of he, the way he appeared to be the nation's hard-pressed dad, um, which obviously is a bit of a con job, but it worked for him. But that's the other thing as well. When people talk about the Blairie, they talk about him, his response to 9-11, and also more, again, his very quick, very catching the mood of the time I guess it looks second when you look back on it response to the death of Princess Diana and the fact that he was able to be kind of national spokesman and and that was a particular oratorical gift that he had that I don't think anyone's really kind of had the same thing since let's finish quickly by talking about um, the Lib Dems and their leadership race Um, Mm -hmm. Norman Lamb um, I, yeah, I interviewed Norman Lamb last week um, and he was, was sort of slightly hurt that the new statesman had endorsed his rival Tim Farron who is the 
very much the front runner in the race. Um, but actually, I, I thought that Norman Lamb was very, um, he was quite impressive because what his whole message is that he wants to bring the party back to the distinctly liberal things that people originally supported them for. So being very, very liberal on, on drug reform and um, sort of, you know, things like the Snoopers Charter and, and classic classic liberal things that they um, want to make sure are back on their agenda rather than defining themselves by either party. So saying that they would give Labour a braid and the Tories a heart. He said that that doesn't that doesn't help that they have to show a new path in British politics, something. And it was it was a vacuum that they did used to fill. And now they've kind of lost their way a bit. So I think that that is quite an important pitch if you want to win the party back on your side and also win new supporters over as well. I know they've had their Lib Dem fight back and I don't know how different those new members are from from their previous sort of membership surge. But I have to say, I think that, I think that to me sounds like a particularly sensible strategy, as does the one that the Greens have adopted since the election, which is that they are going for, you know, they are going to be an anti-austerity party and they're putting out very strong things on like, for example, rents in London and stuff like that. It's not it's not a pitch that will appeal to a huge, you know, they'll never win a, you know, it's not a majority pitch. And it's actually, I think, probably very southeast focused, particularly. Um, but you, you do slightly, don't you feel a sense of sort of envy for the smaller party leaders? Because you can just be a kind of, you can be a kind of clean blade rather than having to try and kind of be a sort of snowball and get all that many people to stick to you. You like my metaphor, didn't you? It's a good metaphor to end on, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean... It, I think the reason why I prefer uh, Norman Lamb to Tim Farron is that he's not, he's not, you know, in in Tim Farron's interview with uh, with the NSC, he said, yeah, I'm not going to go into office unless I get PR. So he's basically saying he's not going to take office. As far as I'm concerned, if you're the head of a political party, you owe it to your voters to try and get some of the stuff they care about delivered. The people who want a sane drugs policy, and God knows we need one, want a Liberal Party which is going to try and take power to make drug policy more sane. The people, yeah, like, it's when, yeah, the way I see it, you know, the part of London I'm from voted for Labour throughout the 80s, voted for it a huge number in 2015 and got nothing for it. You know, you, you, you owe it to your, to your people, as it were, to try and get in office. I don't really understand this green thing of going, oh, well, we'll get a couple of nice seats in the affluent bits of the South. I mean, get a hobby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Send your letters to uh, <laughs> Stephen Bush, uh, new statesman. Um, uh, on that note, that's probably a very good. <laughs> you know, if you, I uh, know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the doghouse anyway for saying that I was, I was bored of people talking about the Iraq War. Um, so you know, we've all, we've all upset people in the last couple of weeks. Um, but for the moment, thank you, Anoush and Stephen. Caroline Crampton and now I'm going to talk to Helen Lewis and Barbara Speed about abortion. Helen, in the magazine this week you've written about the general picture of the politics of abortion and suggested that actually we might be going backwards on this run. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, um, I read a fantastic article in The Nation, the American magazine by Katha Pollitt, who's written a whole book on uh, reproductive rights in America, and she made a really interesting... Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
point I thought, which was that um, gay rights, she, uh, she phrased it, gay rights are winning in America, but re reproductive rights are losing. And I think that's an interesting thing to look at kind of globally. So some of the really big fights, things like uh, equal marriage, you know, even in Ireland, which is considered to be, you know, it's a traditionally Catholic country, it's a very socially conservative country, it voted overwhelmingly for uh, for gay marriage in a referendum earlier this year. And you had the kind of amazing spectacles of, of very lace, you know, straight-laced looking Irish politicians with um, with Panty Bliss, who is a, a drag artist. Um, but that is still a country where it is abortion is essentially illegal. Uh, and actually, I think one of the things that very few people know is that some of the, a lot of the same restrictions apply in Northern Ireland because the mm. 1967 Abortion Act was never uh, implemented there in the same way as it was in, in the rest of the country. We, we, we've, we've sort of essentially devolved some of that. Um, and actually, that, that leads to huge problems. So there's a, an organisation called the Abortion Support Network that gives small grants to women who need to fly over either from Ireland or Northern Ireland to England and Wales to, um, to, and then pay privately to have an abortion. So I really wanted to contrast the kind of the two fates of, of those because I think they are kind of yoked together in, in British minds particularly because it was 1967 was the year that the legislation was passed. Both of them were legalised. Um, and what we saw in the last parliament was not a kind of full frontal assault on the 1967 Act in England and Wales, but rather kind of lots of sort of like nips at it an its ankles from different like places. Like the, the sex selective abortion amendment um, that went through and various, um, you know, there were high profile conservative politicians who were very happy to say that they, you know, their personal opinion was that the uh, limit should be stay the same or even be reduced. Yeah, so the last time there was a, a vote on time limits in 2008, it's always a free vote because mm. it's a matter of conscience. And actually, George Osborne was the, and Theresa Villiers, the only two cabinet members who were in Parliament at the time and who voted to keep 24 weeks. David Cameron, for example, voted for mm. 20 weeks. Jeremy Hunt, who's now Health Secretary, wanted 12 weeks, I think, as also as a result of, uh, of his faith. Um, and what's happened now is that just before, in the kind of dying days at the last parliament, there was um, a, an amendment put onto the Serious Crime Bill that would have explicitly criminalised sex-selective abortions. And that's an interesting topic because it was very much framed, and this is what the people from BPAS, the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, said to me, very much framed now all of these things as help for vulnerable women. So it was kind of it was kind of saying like, well, feminists should be on board with this because actually we're talking about gendercide. You know, we're yes, about exactly. Sort of we don't, we don't female want fetuses, female fetuses to be killed, yeah. which we know is a huge problem in places like China and India because of the ways that you know that the boys are more culturally valued. But actually, the population data shows there's no evidence for it happening mm. here, even in minority communities. So what it becomes then is it is an attempt to try and find another way because actually what you would end up with then is kind of racial profiling of, of, yeah. of pregnant women uh, who are seeking an abortion and then the same thing happens when there is always a, there are attempts to cut term limits so that's to, we know that very few people have late-term abortions and those who do are more disproportionately either very young and they haven't they don't really understand the mechanism, very old and they think it's you know a, men a menopausal thing, or people whose life circumstances change during the course of a pregnancy, you know, their partner becomes abusive or another child mm -hmm. becomes ill or they lose their job or something like that. You know, they're not people having, you know, kind of, a, a, I mean, it's not a casual decision that people yeah. tend to make. Um, and, sh and, and the other one that I think will come up again, there's an MP who's very hot on this called Fiona Bruce, not to be confused with the Antiques Roadshow to Fiona Bruce, uh, is, is disability and the fact that there always are arguments about what constitutes a severe enough disability yeah. to, to, to as a grounds for, for abortion and whether or not something, for example, like Down syndrome is. And 
what a lot of even the, the disability campaigners that I've spoken to about this are say that this has to be a decision. Again, it's about the autonomy of a pregnant woman. You know, you have to decide whether or not you have the economic, mental, familial resources to cope with having that child. Uh, and, and, and actually, the, the, division, the decision on the severity of that disability is something that, you know, some people might, in the same way that people have amniocentesis and they find out that they're their babies have got Down syndrome, then they, they might that might be of absolutely no concern to them. Some people know that they haven't got the resources to be able to, to, to give a child like that the support that they need. Mm. And those people, again, it's it's all about kind of trying to find more and more ways to make it not about a woman's choice, but to find ways of, of interfering in that. Mm. Well, let's bring in Barbara here, because Barbara, this week you've written about a, a kind of improbable sounding bit of abortion activism but nonetheless where um, a group is delivering medication by drone into a country that doesn't allow abortions. Yeah exactly so um, Poland this isn't particularly well known but Poland is one of the very few European countries which places huge limits on abortions Um, but obviously it's kind of in the middle of Europe and just across the border in Germany abortions are very very freely available. Um, So the drone thing it is I mean I spoke to the um, Rebecca Gompert who's the woman who kind of founded this organization and she almost admits that it's sort of a gimmick but it's it's just trying to highlight the fact that you can send this thing which you're not even allowed to let out of your sight with medication and therefore like bring abortions to women who physically cannot have them even though they're across the river from a place where you can pill yeah so this is so again this is a very early form of abortion in that you can only have it if you're less than nine weeks pregnant um, and this is a two like it's, it's basically two pills that you take one after the other um and actually if you had it here there's a chance that you would take at least one of them at home there's not really a recommendation that a fully trained gp needs to be even around when you're having it so it doesn't sound quite as crackpot as it kind of is it's not as crackpot as it sounds um it's not kind of dangerous for the women but the, but the point that um Rebecca and her organisation are trying to highlight is that this sort of arbitrary national border mm, separating exactly. women who, because th- particularly that border between Poland and Germany is quite a new one historically, women who come from the, the same place and probably the same kind of circumstance have radically different choices just because they exactly. happen to fall on either side. I think it would shock people, but the fact is there's a case that's, um, I think it's the one who's currently on a waiting trial in, in Belfast of a woman who is accused of the I mean, charge of supplying poison because it um, uh, one of these drugs it's I think uh, I'm going to say it wrong mifepristone I think one of the it's, yeah, it's one of the two that you take yeah. um, it essentially induces a kind of a very heavy period it's an it's an early stage mm-hmm. miscarriage so you can only have it in the in the early you know first trimester um, maybe even a short I think probably quite a lot shorter period than that but she's being accused because she obtained for her daughter these pills on the internet where they are pretty freely available um but she's going she's been prosecuted by this and there this is this has become a kind of huge rallying point really um and one of the problems as it highlights is there's been this sort of strange hypocrisy where it's been essentially tolerated that people would fly abroad Mm -hmm. but the problem with that particularly um and this is a point actually that that Katha Pollitt makes in her piece too is that it becomes a huge class issue yeah because it's can you afford to fly abroad, you know, and actually, if you're, you know, if you're living independently, if you're kind of, you know, 25 or over, then that's much easier. If you're, but if, you know, if you if you are reliant on your parents, reliant on your partner uh, who might be controlling your money, you know, if you are reliant on the fact that you, you know, if you don't have a job that will pay you sufficiently to be able to pay 
maybe thousands of pounds for this, then all of those people, so there is a, there is a very much two-tier level, this which is always what happened in the US as well. There was always, I mean, and it happens now in the US because individual states have such different restrictions, that you know, wealthy women have much better access to family planning at the, you know, at the start end and the kind of contraception end. And also, if they need to, to seek an abortion, they have the means and the independence to do that. There's a, I remember there's a bit in Catelyn Moran's book, How to Be a Woman, where she writes about her abortion and one of the other women who's in the clinic at the same time as her is an Irish young woman. Um, who And she writes about how dreadful she, just physically how dreadful she feels, and then contrasts it with how she her husband is just going to drive her home now and she gets to lie on the sofa. This mm. woman has to get a train and then a bus and then a train and then a ferry and then pretend that nothing happened. Mm. So the chances of her fainting or having some other kind of serious complication are vastly increased because of the precarious nature of what she's had to do to yeah. get what she needs. And then the same thing, we know that there are cases where, you know, violently and abusive men control women through kind of continuously keeping them pregnant, essentially, mm. and trying, you know, and, and, and that is a sort of kind of thing that, you know, that kind of keeps you vulnerable and kind of keeps you tied to me and you can't get any, you can't get away from me because you've got a young baby or you're pregnant. And that is, again, if you're putting extra hurdles in the way of those people, that's a problem. I mean, the other thing I feel very strongly about is that with the sex-selective abortion thing is if that were happening, then you, I would want that to be tackled at the supply end, at the start end. You yeah. know, why is your culture, why does your culture value women so little? And also not sending people home and refusing them an abortion to, to find out that they've had an abortion by having the baby kicked out of them, basically, by people at home. I think that's... I think... My, I, I come to this, you know, I grew up Catholic from a very strong position that I would like there to be fewer abortions. But I think you, you solve that at the at the start end with better sex mm. education and better access to contraception, and and fundamentally letting people have control early in the process. And then you have to accept that the price of women being free is that you will sometimes, you know, mistakes will happen, people's life circumstances will mm. will change. But also that. This whole kind of culture of allowing it to happen and never prosecuting women themselves for doing it just means that they're accepting that they occur, but they won't accept that the best situation in which it can occur is but that it's completely, yeah, completely free and accessible. And there, I mean, it's worth noting that of the five European countries that do place restrictions on abortions, the UK is still one of them because we have this two doctor rule. And for them to kind of build on that, you can see it happening just like little things that seem like they don't matter but every restriction you place on it makes it more unsafe basically there was a yeah nadine doris tried to put up an, uh, an amendment that said anyone that's a, that was an abortion provider couldn't also offer nhs counseling and there's been lots of other stuff like that happening in mm. the in the states about things like you know you having to have an ultrasound or having to have mm. a, a, a particularly you know having to have sort of a vaginal exam all the, on all of those kind of things having to have a cooling off period you know like this idea that's that you have to that you can buy well, a kind yeah. of machine gun by you sort of walk into a store but the, the you know you have to have to have a really good think about whether mm. or not this is what you wanted like you probably just you know probably on your way home and you thought oh, i'll just pop in and see <laughs> if they're free it's all just ways of making it firstly making women never want to approach the service in the first place making it too scary and then once they do sort of miring them in red tape and making it hard but um let's just come back around to what we talked to at the beginning about the contrast between reproductive rights and gay rights mm. because i just found it really interesting you mentioned um david cameron being one of the people um in 2008 voting against um what was it to, so he wants to, 20 weeks he wants yeah. 20 weeks to, to reduce the the uh, abortion limit um 
but he's been one of the most vocal people in the Conservative Party supporting gay rights and particularly equal marriage. So I just wonder, have you got any insight there, Helen, into this disjunction that it's, you know, these two sort of historic civil rights issues, how he can be so supportive of one and so completely well, supportive yeah, of the other? Well, yeah, he's the guy who said, I don't support gay marriage in spite of being conservative. I do it because I am a conservative. And I think that's something that, you know, um, kind of more radical lesbian activists, like, I think Julie Bindle's one that kind of springs to mind, questioned whether or not you know in the sense that you want equality but actually is marriage something that you know gay people were supposed to be kind of you know tearing down the the nuclear mm. family and, and and that whole uh, you know particularly the idealization of it that that is the kind of highest state of being that you can be in is being a nuclear family but actually you know does wanting to is wanting to be married a very conservative thing i mean it, you know i married um it's it makes a lot of se- it makes a lot of sense in sort of tax terms and visitation terms and all those kind of things it is fundamentally something that is that makes your life much easier in a social sense so i absolutely think that you know i i, I think gay gay marriage is a very good thing in that sense if we're going to have the institution of marriage it has to be open to everybody but it's it is fundamentally quite a conservative thing to want. By, by getting married, you're joining the establishment, is, I suppose, the perception. Yeah, you're not yeah. subverting marriage, really, because yeah. it's marriage still between two people. It's just that their, their genders are different. Um, whereas abortion is a very subversive thing because it's about you know the whole structure of control of women and kind of having control of their own lives. And I think it is a very scary thing for men because there are always kind of feelings about, you know, well, I've got her pregnant, why don't I get a say? And you kind of go, well, I'm sorry, but you're not going to be the one who's going to be, you know, violently nauseous. Your body's going to completely change. You know, your, you know, your pelvic also, floor muscles are going to take a long time. You know, you're at risk of all these things. Actually, one of the reasons, you know, Barbara mentioned the two doctor rule. The reason that two doctors will always sign up an abortion is because it is statistically you are much less likely to die if you have an abortion because childbirth and is certain pregnancy are so dangerous mm. uh, in comparison to, to not being pregnant so i think that's that's the but but that is a very destabilizing thing to uh, to a male sort of dominated society the fact that there is a part of something that women do with some part of you that you then don't get any further say mm. over and i suppose it comes back around to the idea that because politics particularly in westminster is so male dominated that male feelings about reproductive rights are prioritised. Yeah, and I think you system. definitely do. I think you definitely hear a lot about, you know, fathers and, and, and how difficult it is for fathers. And I and I, I, I absolutely accept that it is very hard that, you know, uh, that women do get the vast majority of kind of custody as it was, as was. But that's because they also are the majority of primary caregivers. You know, if, if you, you are more likely as a man to be, to be made, you know, the sole care of children if you were before the divorce happened or before you split up, I think. Yeah, and I mean, also that even among male politicians who are sort of forced to admit that we have to have legal access to abortion, they cannot see it as anything but the death of a child sometimes. Like, so Tim Farron saying that every abortion that happens is a tragedy, whilst maintaining that we need these laws, is still not particularly helpful because it is always acting like this woman's life is completely irrelevant. That it's not that it's a tragedy that she would have been forced to leave her job forced to I mean anything obviously it depends on the situation but there's just this kind of refusal to see past this idea of it as and to frame it as a kind of as a sort of selfish thing yeah an anti-family that's I guess maybe that's where Cameron fits in really that he's very keen on family for any people of any sexuality but that 
maybe abortion is something he sees as being... Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Farron, because that's, that's how I conclude the column, is by, by talking about the fact that the two frontrunners in the Labour and Le- Lib Dem leadership races are both very um, committed Christians who have... Um, who have kind of conscientious objections to a lot of, of things around in the mm. in the sort of family zone. So Tim Farron has said he said on Twitter he wouldn't ask for um, reduced time limits because you know the science hasn't hasn't changed on that. Andy Burnham voted to keep twenty four weeks actually to to his credit, but both of them have, for example, uh, Tim Farron abstained on the third reading of the same sex marriage bill. Andy Burnham voted for um, a defeated amendment which would have required there to be a male figure when lesbians had IVF. So for all that, I think that both of them, if they led their parties, would not demur from the kind of the the reproduction rights agenda. Then neither of them are going to be campaigners to change and and to further liberalise the law. So Caroline Lucas, for example, is currently um, campaigning for buffer zones around... Uh, abortion clinics to stop that tactic imported from America of having kind of people screaming in your face and waving placards and sort of bloody petri dishes at you. Um, and I hope that you know, whoever ends up leading Labour and the Dems would support that. But one of the things that feminist campaigners are talking about is to switch away from being so defensive and constantly fighting rearguard actions and to say, actually, why do we still have the two doctor rule? Why is it not abortion on demand up to a you know, up to a certain time limit. Um, why, why don't we just? I mean, why that was smuggled through to get it through in in 1967 as a way of sort of saying, well, obviously there will still be some checks and balances on this. But have we not, in the nearly 50 years since, moved on from that? Well, that's the point, isn't it? That with with the leaders, those parties are likely to have. They're never going to lead from the front on these issues. No. It's not going to be politically convenient or indeed scientifically rational to cha- to reduce these things. But whereas to give a cheer for Yvette Cooper, behind the scenes she was very active in that um, mm. that same sex um, same sex the sex selective abortions debate because she mm. saw it for what it was, which was a, a kind of Trojan horse essentially. Mm. Well, that's all very interesting, and I think sadly we'll probably be returning to this subject over this Parliament. But thanks very much, Helen and Barbara. Meanwhile. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.